I want to get right to it today, so let me go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to read a large number of verses, going to kind of take this thought as we are doing uh, in context and working with big thoughts as we work our way through the book of Acts. So, Acts chapter 4, verse number 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000 people. So this, the followers of Christ are now radically multiplying as the disciples are preaching. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, which would have been Annas' son-in-law, and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, speaking of the disciples, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? So they're asking, by what authority? Where did you get the power to perform this miracle on the lame man that we discussed last week? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. So Peter loves this. He's loaded now. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised, doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you the builders, which become the head of the corner. This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 118. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, and standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them. It's manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that has spread no further. That was their only concern. Not really the question by what power was a ruse. They're just getting to this point. They just want this to stop. That it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, because that's a godly thing to do, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, more than to God, will judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them, because of the people, for all glorified God that which had been done. So these are just people-pleasing leaders who are self-centered in their own, rooted in their own interest, and that's the nature of the religious establishment of Jerusalem at that time. Verse 22, for the man was above 40 years old, of whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company, and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. They're excited about this. And when they heard that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, 
They're going to go here and extol the, the sovereignty of God, who by the mouth of the servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy, thy, thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments, let Lord, as we look into this this amazing text, Lord, of an opportunity used, Lord, to advance the kingdom of God, to share the gospel. Lord, I, I pray we could take away part of the heart and the spirit that these disciples had in this moment, and Lord, apply it to our lives and the world that we live, that we may declare with great boldness, Lord, the incredible uniqueness and the individuality of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask that in His name. Amen. I'm not really big on titles, but I got a doozy today. <laughs> I hate to say it, they're often afterthoughts because I'm just not big into titles, but I put some thought into this one. The title of the message today is The Uncompromising Affirmation of the Absolute Uniqueness of Christ. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah, I don't know if the message is going to be good or not, but that's cool, I'm telling you. That's, that's a great thought right there. You know, the theme and the spirit of the time which we live in is that inclusion and plurality are the virtues that must be embraced to be an enlightened society. Now, there's nothing wrong with embracing and seeing virtue in all people. All of us are, are, are equal at the cross. Um, I, I, we need a measure of this, but that's not what I'm implying in the statement I just made. What I mean here is that unless you and I accept and put on equal footing all beliefs, all thoughts, all ideologies, then somehow we're missing it. That, that, that we're bigoted, that we're being unkind. Our society has a form of extreme egalitarianism, oppressed equality that has to be accepted across all genres of life, including the political, uh, political spectrum, social classes, gender orientation, cultural norms, and religious preferences. It's a fancy way of saying this, it's not acceptable in our society to claim anything as absolute truth. That is the spirit of our age. That nothing can be claimed as absolute except whatever the talking heads say is absolute truth. Ecumenicalism is an abused form of tolerance. Uh, it, it's, it's the harbinger of things that are not equal and made so. Such is the world in this postmodern age. But genuine, authentic Christianity holds a different view. It is not born out of antagonism or belligerence nor pride or arrogance. Um, on the contrary, what we espouse is born out of humility and necessity, recognizing who we are as fallen sinful creatures and real, realizing as humans in the dilemma we are in socially, politically, but mostly spiritually, we can do nothing to save ourselves apart from Christ. 
You know, we, we want to see our country saved, but it cannot be done apart from Christ. We want to see the economy turn. We want to see the blessings upon America. And I'm telling you, we are estranging ourselves from that possibility with every movement further and further away from the precepts of God. As Acts 4.12 so eloquently states, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we as a culture, a society, and most emphatically a saved person, a lost person trying to be saved, can be saved, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in that name only. This unequivocal and non-negotiable truth is something that we should be stating publicly and living out authentically. And when we do, if we do, it will put us at odds with the spirit of this age. We will find ourselves not too far removed from the situation that Peter and John were in in Acts chapter 4. As stated in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ, all those who try to live a genuine, authentic Christian life, all those who live boldly for Christ, well, they will in fact suffer, the Bible says, persecution is pretty axiomatic. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, the servant is not above his master, nor a servant above his Lord. And that's echoed in John chapter 15, verse 2. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That is because Jesus, though kind and loving and gracious and merciful, forgiving and good, he was also adamant that he was the door, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man can come to the Father except through that door, except through that gate, except through that cross. That He and He alone is the singular unique source of our salvation as fallen human beings. That conviction and statement of the truth nailed Him to the cross. And if authentically believed and acted upon, it will initiate the same suffering in our lives today as well. And the fact that we often experience so little suffering isn't because the age has changed any. It's maybe because Christianity has. This is what we see at the beginning of the early church. The initiation and the imitation of the servant of the master. Of John and Peter and others acting in the same way that Christ would have acted in the same situation. Seeing a man uh, with palsy for 40 years, a congenital defect, a crippling disease from, from his birth. They fastened eyes as they passed each other in the temple. This man was begging for sustenance and a living. And Peter and John looked upon this man with pity and compassion and said, Silver and gold have we none, but such as we have I give unto thee. And he commanded the man to rise up and walk, and he did. It's called a notable miracle in the Word of God. And for this act, we see this incredible persecution initiated in Acts chapter 4. A man was made whole. This was the great sin. And it created such a great stir in the city and among the people that people began to gather in great masses to witness this physical transform transformation of this man. And people stood in awe and wonder, looking upon him, knowing who he was, most likely knowing his family, his condition. And the text is really specific. He had been in this condition for four decades, 40 years. People gathered together, probably in far greater numbers than we have here today, they're beholding this man leaping and you know, running and praising God, hearing the, the glories of God declared. And Peter seizes upon this opportunity. And he begins to preach the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He declared the gospel, the identity of the resurrected Messiah in Christ, the Savior of the world. And that belief and faith in His name would lead to not just the salvation of the body, but the salvation of the spirit and the soul. This exclusive and authoritative message threatened the status quo of the temple. So the Bible tells us here specifically that there were some priests and leaders here, but the Sadducees were a part of this group. Pharisees are omitted here for whatever reason, but the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of the leading sects in Judaism at this day. They were by far um, the richest of all those in Israel. They held great lands, and they had come to a compromising relationship with the Romans more than any other group. And basically, if they could keep Judaism in check, if they could keep you know, the people in the temple from, from rioting and clamoring for Messiah, well, then all would be well, and the Roman armies would kept at bay, and Rome would keep cash in their pockets. And this stir among the Jews and this notable miracle done in the proclamation of Peter and John and other disciples that there is a Messiah and He is risen and He's come to save and deliver Israel, well, this threatened the status quo. And they had no love for Christ before, and they put Him to the cross. And now, given the opportunity, they would do the same to Peter and John. Any disturbance, rumor of Messiah, the people would rally around, around had to be put to rest. So they gathered the disciples. The text says they laid hands on them. This was a forcible arrest by the temple guard, bringing these men before this council of Sadducees and others. And they feigned interest how this notable miracle was done. By what name? By what authority do you do these things? But they truly had no interest in the, that answer or the truth. But Peter told them anyway. And that it was accomplished by Jesus whom they crucified, whom God vindicated, who used it to the cross, but God vindicated and resurrected. And Peter argued from the Old Testament Psalms, that the one they had abused, this, this, this rock they had rejected, the cornerstone of the temple that they cared not for, that God has made the chief and the cornerstone. It's is upon which everything else is built. He was speaking of the prophetic foretelling of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was arguing from the scriptures once again, as he's done so eloquently in the chapter before, that Jesus Christ is in fact the resurrected Messiah. And they missed it. Well, the Sadducees did no business spiritual business for the answer that Peter proffered, nor the truth. They just knew that they, they didn't want them to do this anymore. The lame man was right before them. He's, he's, if there was a witness stand, he's right there saying, hey guys, I'm here, I'm hell, I'm, I'm good. The people saw it. And uh, the Sadducees knew that something had been done. They, they just wanted to stop the whole scene. So after conferring, hoping to intimidate the disciples through threatening, to cut short the movement that was now seen, thousands saved and converted, they ordered them to be silent. Not just once, but numerous times. And Peter and John respectfully declined that offer. <laughs> Stating they were accountable to a higher court, God's court. And they couldn't help but speak of the things that they had seen and heard. That they, and what the, the evidence of the miracle that they had performed through Christ was proof that God was with them and they spoke as God would have spoken and they simply could not and would not be silent. The story concludes with the religious elite stymied for the moment. 
their imprisonment and threatening at the moment was now proving tepid in the hearts of a resilient band of disciples, these committed followers of Christ. Disciples gathered together rejoicing in God's goodness. They declared His sovereignty in all things, and they were happy to be a part of what God was doing. They gave thanks for the opportunity to be witnesses for Christ. And in a further confirmation of God's blessing and power, the whole building shook as the Holy Ghost is yet manifested now for the third time in a supernatural way as evidence that God is with these men. And they prayed for even a greater boldness to go out and preach all the more. It's a cool story. It's a great story. But I really just have a simple thought for us today in terms of application. The point in the text, I believe, is that the persecution beginning here in Acts for the early church probably should be the norm for the ages for all those who truly live for Christ. Okay, you with me on that? See, that doesn't get an amen, does it? <laughs> and I get it. The thought here is that the early church, well, they were imitators of the Lord. They spoke the words of the Lord. They spoke of their Lord. They were doing the works of God. They were, they were being good to the disenfranchised of society. They were loving people. They had real interest in the souls of other men. They were proclaiming truth. They were doing everything that the religious establishment of that day was not doing. And the result of all that doing good was the same thing that had Lord Jesus Christ. They suffered persecution. Said another way, the world's persecution can always be expected to be part of the genuine, authentic Christian life. Now, I want you to think about this with me, okay? We, um, Rebecca encouraged us to own the beloved, th that status. But this is also true of us. Christians, we are literally the citizens of another world. This place, this world, its values, its opinions are not ours. They cannot, and we cannot accept them nor be a part of them. Christians, we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We believe in a Savior that the world categorically rejects. We live by faith, not by sight. We are supposed to live and lay up treasures for a future day, a heavenly day. That's where we place our commitment. That's where we place our love. That's where we place our, our daily effort is in another day. We give of our finances. We give of our time. We give of our service. We give of our life and energy for the people here today and for our treasure and reward in the future. We are eternally minded, not rooted in the temporary or the moment. We are not to love the things in the world. Not the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. You and I as Christians, followers of Christ, we believe in a creator. And we believe in a creation that he uh, incredibly and wonderfully made. We believe we are that fearfully and wonderfully made. Not by chance, uh, not by eons of time, but by the mind and heart and the spoken word of God. We oppose abortion. We correct gender dysphoria. We believe that a man and a woman were created by God in their assigned biology with differing chromosomes standing as proof eternally. We do not believe in substituting man's ideas for God's ideas 
Because man's ideas, for the most part, in terms of science and philosophy and religion, are abominable. We stand for truth in a postmodern age. We believe there are such things as right. And we believe that there are things that are wrong. We believe there are things that are moral. And we believe there are things that are immoral. We believe there's an ethical way to live, don't we? We believe in being honest and truthful and transparent and authentic. We are hardworking, honest, virtuous. We, we have no part in the priorities of this world. We believe in love. We believe in sacrifice. We use our wealth and time and resources for the benefit of the kingdom of God as a first priority. Don't we? Don't we? <clears throat> we are unique. We're not trying to be odd or weird. I don't think we have to be, but we are different. And people see it. We don't go play on Sundays, we go to church. And we're so committed, we come back on a Sunday night. And then we're even beyond that, we come back Wednesday nights. We train our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We talk to our kids about the, the priority of God in their life. Our greatest hope in life is that our children will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for their spouses. We hope they'll be in the same church that we are one day, or at least a church that's just like it. These are our values. These are the things that we commend ourselves to. We spend time in the Word of God. We read it. We take in from it. We try to appropriate it to our lives. We're in this book because we know these are the words of life. This is man's direction for life. So we stay in this book on a daily basis. We read it because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We spend time on our knees in prayer. We believe literally, honestly, in eternity. And the reality of that we understand the dread of the reality of a genuine burning hell right. that all those who do not know Christ will go there and spend an eternity. And that makes us sober. It's a bother to our spirit and our hearts that people we know and live next to may not know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ yet and they're going to spend their lives in this place apart from the knowledge of Christ. We believe in a real heaven, a coming future day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and set His foot on this planet once again and initiate a millennial kingdom, a thousand year rule and reign, and we'll be there with Him. And then comes eternity after the great white throne judgment. We believe that we are going to live with Christ forever and ever and ever. And that is a present reality that makes this present reality infinitesimally smaller and of lesser importance. We have motivation to declare the gospel, to see men saved. We look forward to our future home. We affirm that we will be judged one day at the bema seat of Christ that's in the sky, that there all the work of our life is going to be laid bare, 
It'll be proven to be wood, hay, and stubble, or silver and gold and precious stones. And we will live with that reward for the rest of eternity. We know that day's coming. We know it's real. It's not a day of dread. It's something we should look forward to. Because we've lived for Christ in this world. All these beliefs and priorities are manifested in the way we live our Christian life. And we can't but help to speak in Jesus' name. Okay, if you weren't with me just yet, there could be just a little bit of irony in all that. See, there's a, there's a price to be paid for following Christ. They paid the price. He paid the price. All those who have ever followed Christ genuinely have paid the price. In some form or another, there's a price to be paid for living for the reward of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And as we strive to be kind and gracious and patient and good, we are also in need to be undeniably, unequivocally committed to our Christ and to our Savior. You know why? Because neither is a salvation in any other name. There's no other purpose to live for but that name. There's no other thing that will endure in heaven minus those who live and accept that name. See, this, this is a great reality is that Jesus saves. He's, he's the only Savior. He saved my soul. He is saving my life. Literally. He's given me the most beautiful and amazing life. He leads me in the path of righteousness. He's shown me how to live. He's taught me how to love. He's taught me how to care about other people. He's shown me that when I give, I'm giving back, pressed down, shaken together, good measure through the hands of men. I can't outgive God. I've learned that. He's literally saving every part of my life. Voodoo doesn't do that. Islam can't give that. Pantheism can't. Good works can't. Muhammad can't do it. And we can't do it in our own name. There's not another name to live for than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we navigate this life minus the world's rebuke, affirming all these things and living authentically, then something's wrong. We are either far too comfortable with the world, or we are living unloyally, or maybe even in denial of the reality of Christ. It's unfortunate, but it's true that society, let me say this again, it's unfortunate, not just for society, but even Christian culture. We live in the aspirin age. By that, I mean, we just tend to want to avoid pain at any cost. We have made this pinnacle of virtue of safety. It even comes with two words, safety first. Eh, not true. Hey, I want to be safe, my kids be safe, but that is not my absolute pinnacle virtue. I will sacrifice safety for service to Christ if need be. That's what Christians do. 
And if you want to affirm that a little more, you can. Thank you, Ryan. I'm not talking about political here. I'm just saying comfortable. Every time we bump up against an edge, we back away. The voice of pain, the virtue of being safe. We unlike, you know, Peter who said in 1 Peter 3, for it is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God, meaning living for God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Hey, we're not looking for a fight. And I'm never looking to be unkind no matter what comes my way, but neither am I looking to placate a world that doesn't agree with me. Nice sometimes has no edge to it. For even hereunto are you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. I'm here to tell you, if you just try to live for Christ, it's going to grate. You don't partake in the dirty joke. You don't do, you know, the world's offering all these things. You know what, I'm just going to opt out for something different. People talk about religion, you know, you, you don't just soft pedal back, but you know, hey, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. I believe he's the savior of the world. The only way a man can go to God. That's what they need to hear. I'm going to be honest, even when it hurts. If I made a promise, I'm going to keep it. Hey, you start doing that kind of stuff in the world. You start living honestly and ethically. Christ lived with no sin. And in absolute goodness, and they hated him. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Strangers and pilgrims. That's how we feel in this world. Abstain from fleshly lust. Have honest conversation. And when you do that, the result is people to speak evil of you. But they still may see your good works. And possibly through that, like what's different about those people? Why are they good to me even when I'm bad to them? Why, why, when I revile, do they give me a soft and a kind and courteous answer? Why is that man always so honest? Why are they so faithful to church? Why, why do they impoverish themselves in the way they give to the Lord? Why do they sacrifice their time? I mean, there are so many other more productive things to do on a Sunday. Maybe they'll see some of that stuff and inquire about the reason of the hope that's in us. Contemporary Christianity so often just blends in. Just trying to be acceptable. And if we as a church are not careful, I'm not, I'm not against anything that we are currently doing. That's what you understand. If we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves trying to attract a lost world to the church. Now look, I'm about being sharp. I'm about media. I'm about advertisement. Some of that stuff. But, you know, that, that is no substitute for any of us living an authentic Christian life out in the world. And for you and I personally, individually, being responsible for someone else being in this church, don't let the billboard do that for you. Don't let the social media of Eastland Baptist Church keep you from witnessing. We can't but help speak and declare all that we have seen and heard. That should be the heartbeat of a Christian. We have to do our part. We should want to do our part. 
We're going to try to attract people through media, design, and music, and program. Instead of attracting them through truth and love and yieldness and passion, submitting to the authority of Christ in all areas of our life. Our aversion to rebuke and pain has forced our faith inside only to mere intellectual assent and belief short of behavior. We struggle to deny ourselves worldly pleasures for our own sake. And if we can't deny ourselves, how can we deny, you know, for Christ when he asks things of us? This is, this is sobering to me. I'm not trying to be accusatory. I'm painting with a broad stroke here. You know, the devil in the Western world doesn't have to kill us anymore to silence us. All he needs to do is indulge us. I'll just go fishing. I'll just think about your retirement. I'm not against retirement. You understand the point. I just get preoccupied with this. Just get preoccupied with this. And all of a sudden, hey, just, you know, those, those are your views. There's a lot of views out there. There's a lot of truths. You just, you just hold yours. You can hold as dearly as you want to. Just don't proselyte anyone. Don't hold it boldly, not courageously, and certainly not absolutely and authoritatively, because that's offensive to us. I believe a big part of the problem of Christian banality and benignness is, you know, maybe in this world we just honestly can't understand God's goodness and love towards us. We don't live in a hostile, difficult environment where the hope of heaven looms large. Now we're going to go home to our 72-inch TVs and air-conditioned climate and nice cars out there. I'm not against it. That's not my point to be critical. I'm just saying, listen, not everything in the world in what it gives us is benign. These things impact and influence us. And as hard as we fight not to be children of this age, we probably are more than we realize and we have to see it. Dying without Christ is hell. And that's what we've escaped. And the love of Christ was shed abroad in our hearts. He came to me. He's come to you. And I don't know, maybe be in your 10,565 in eternity, we're going to go, man, why didn't I get that when I was on earth? Why in the world were the, the things of this world, why do they have such a hold on me? Why do I have such a hard time yielding to the authority of Christ in my life? We need to do business with the reality of heaven and hell and the love of Christ in our lives. All too often, we were like the other brother in the story of the prodigal son, spoiled and unaware of what God and His goodness has already gifted us with. You know, I, this thought is so provoking to me. It has been for years. The Bible says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Because see, here's the deal. All of us have been forgiven much. We just don't all understand it equally. And that's the difference in commitment and passion and benign Christian living, perhaps. 
these men who laid holes on the disciples, threatening them, they did stand back and go, who are those guys? Wow. That's authentic. That's genuine. That's boldness. That's courage. We've never seen any man come in here and talk to us that way, stand this boldly, so courageously. It was a wow. Those guys have been with Jesus. So another thought may be, if we're living pretty safely and come to this world, maybe people aren't noticing that we've been with Jesus. They don't see that transformation in us. I understand the disciples had a unique opportunity. They lived with the physical body, bodily Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, there's a real, genuine Holy Spirit that resides in my heart. He lives here. Like, this is closer. It's here. And the Bible says that Holy Spirit can help me be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That means spending time with God in His Word and in prayer. Yield us. That people can look at me and go, wow, he's been with Jesus. That person's been with Jesus. He's real to them. I think if we could appreciate more, spend more time with him, that we might share more of the passion and the boldness of Peter. I'm going to be done. I've got to stop. I want to challenge you with this. We need to not only believe and behave like Christians should, but we should live with the uncompromising affirmation of the absolute uniqueness of Christ. <laughs> he is, I am, giving my life to the uncompromising affirmation of the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. That's my calling. I'm not asking anyone here to go out there and look for a fight. I am going to say this. If you stand for God, stand for truth, stand for Jesus, if you share your faith, if you live as light and salt in this world, evil and difficulty will find you. You don't have to go look for it. But let it come. Because I'm committed to that. And God help us that all of us are. Let me ask you to stand.